It's so good to see everybody here today. Uh, for all of those that are worshiping here, for those that are worshiping in our summit service, uh, we'll say more about that at the conclusion of this service. Great things are happening over there. For those that are worshiping in our mask required area in the lower auditorium, all of those that are worshiping at home online, welcome to everybody. If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Romans chapter one. Uh, it's going to take me a little while to get to that passage uh, this morning, a little different message, but that is where uh, we're headed. Well, there are people who criticize the Christian faith because uh, Christians and the Bible, they believe, really avoid answering the hardest questions. There are people uh, who believe that the Christian faith is unreasonable because those people have questions, hard questions, that they don't know the answers to. And so people pit Christianity versus science. People pit the Bible versus history. People pit faith versus facts. And people call the Christian faith a hoax and they dismiss it. And as a consequence, they, they lose out on the most valuable gift, on the most profound truth and the most satisfying answer. So what does the Bible have to say in a time like that with, with critics like that? I think the Bible has a very important instruction for all of us. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to show it to you on the screen. But, but look at this command that that the Lord gives us uh, through the epistle of 1 Peter. He says, be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. He says, we ought to be ready to give an answer, to give a defense for the hope that is within us. We should be able to give a reason for the hope. Our faith is reasonable. Despite what some critics might say, it is reasonable intellectually, historically, scientifically, logically. Our faith is reasonable. And we need to be able to give an answer for that. And so what I've done over the last few weeks is prayerfully to identify what I believe are six of the hardest questions the world is asking of the church. Six of the hardest questions I can think of that critics might be asking of Christians and our goal over the next six weeks is to answer the hard questions. If critics are point to the hard questions, if they will say we avoid the hard questions, then let's stand up and let's give a defense as we're commanded in 1 Peter 3 and let's answer the hard questions. Now maybe you can think of some questions harder than these, but I could not. I have four theological questions, sort of philosophical questions, and then two ethical questions. So today we'll begin with the question, how can we know that God exists? That's question number one. Question number two, why doesn't God stop all the suffering? Have you wondered that? People are asking that question. Why do little kids die of leukemia? Why is the COVID-19 virus uh, just continuing to spread around our country? Why doesn't God stop all suffering? Question three, how can a good God send someone to hell? I hear that question often. Question four, did God really create the world? And did he really create you? When we think about the creation story in the Bible, is that reasonable? And then we'll look to two ethical questions. 
Number one, how can homosexuality be sinful? Uh, we live in a world that says that it cannot be, and the world has its reasons and its arguments, but those differ from the Word of God. So how can it be reasonable? How can we say that homosexuality is a sin? And then the final ethical question, are abstinence and monogamy reasonable? Reasonable, even today in our culture. And so we're going to take, if the Lord allows, those six questions over the next six weeks. We're going to find the Bible answer to those questions. But then I'm going to give you something more than that. Because it turns out there's really something even more valuable than the Bible answer. That's important, and we're going to, we're going to do that. But there's something even more valuable than that, and we'll see that each week. So question number one, how can we know that God exists? How can we know that God is real? Well, to answer this question, you first have to understand that it really involves two questions. First of all, how do we know anything? How do we know anything? How do we know any fact, any truth that presents itself? How do we know something? So that's where we must begin. And then we need to answer the question, is it reasonable to believe? Is it a reasonable position to say that God exists, that he is real? So let's take those questions one at a time so we can answer the big question, how can we know that God exists? So first of all, how do we know anything? You know, critics will say that the Christian faith is unreasonable, but then they will turn around and demand an unreasonable proof for Christianity. Let me, let me tell you what I mean. Critics will say, I require absolute measurable, repeatable, proof positive that the Bible is true. They'll demand that. But listen, that's not a reasonable demand. And when somebody says that, and you often hear critics say those things, you've got to prove to me beyond a shadow of a doubt. You have to give me a logical proof that God is real. When somebody demands that, they simply indicate that they've not given it much thought. That is not reasonable and it's it, it reveals that they don't really understand how we know anything. So there are two ways to know something. First of all, sometimes we know things because there is an empirical reason to know. For instance, two plus two is four. Is that true? Do you believe that? Two plus two is four. Now, how do we know that two plus two is four? Well, we can measure it. We can do an experiment on it. We can repeat it. We can see clearly, we can prove that two plus two is four. If you have two marbles and you have two more marbles, you put them together, it's four marbles. If you have two shoes and two more shoes, you put them together, it's four shoes. You can repeat the experiment in Switzerland. You can repeat it in Japan. You can repeat it in Russia. It's always two plus two is four. That is an empirical way of understanding of knowing something. Let me give you another example. Listen to this. Any object wholly or partially immersed in fluid is buoyed up by the force equal to the weight of the fluid displaced by the object. You got that? Did you write it down? That's uh, Archimedes' principle. That tells us why things float. Now, is that true? It is true. We know it's true because we can test it. We can see, does this float? Does it not float? Why does it float? Does it float here? Does it float in another country? Does it float on another day? We can measure it. We can do an experiment and we know it's true. How about this one? Blue and yellow make green. Now, that doesn't seem true to me. I guess I'm sort of artistically challenged, but I know it is. 
Now, why do we know that blue plus yellow is green? Well, because we can test it again. We can repeat it. We can do experiments. And there's one whole way of knowing this empirical data we can know because we can test it and experiment and repeat. That's one way of knowing. But listen, church, most things we know, we don't know that way. Most things we know because we have looked at evidence, we have evaluated the evidence, and then we have made a decision that we will believe that this is true. We, we look for evidence, we evaluate how, how uh, faithful, how reliable the evidence is, and then we make a decision. Now let me give you some examples there. Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president. Now is that true? Well it is. We, we believe that that is true. But it's not because we can do an experiment, right? You, you can't in a laboratory uh, rerun the creation of America and, and see how it turns out. Is Lincoln the 16th president? And then you run the experiment over and over again. He works out to be the 16th president every time. You, you can't do a blood test. There's not something in a, in a test tube that you can look at to determine that he's the 16th president. No, the way we know he's the 16th president is we've just, we've looked at some evidence. There's some, some documents, some, some old documents that say he was the 16th president. There are some letters. There are some, some paintings. There, there's all of this. There's some books that were written by contemporaries. We have all of this evidence. So we look at the evidence, we evaluate it, and then we make a decision that it is sufficient evidence for us to believe that we can't prove it. We believe that Abraham Lincoln is the 16th president. Do you understand the difference? Let me give you a couple of examples, more examples, just so, so, so that'll sink in, because that's really the premise of this whole idea. Truth number two, my wife loves me. Now, is that true or false? Well, I believe it's true. Now, th there's not some experiment that you can do to determine that. She can't go and get a blood test, and some doctor looks at the blood and says, oh, yeah, she loves you. You, you can't test it in that way. You can't repeat our marriage in, in, in some laboratory and see how it turns out if you do it 10 times in a row. No, the reason I believe my wife loves me is because I see some evidence. She's still with me, which amazes me. She, she, uh, she puts up with me. She's kind to me. She, she shows love to me. And so I look at the evidence and though I cannot prove that she loves me, the evidence is overwhelming. And so I choose to believe based on evidence, my wife loves me. Now, let me give you another statement. Carl Sagan, one of the most uh, well-known atheists, one uh, who attacked Christianity at every turn. Uh, he's been dead for a few years. He doesn't still hold to the things that he held to in those days. Uh, but he is famous for saying this. The cosmos, that's everything you see, the, this and up, up in the sky and the stars and the moon and everything. The cosmos is all that it, it, that is, it's all that was or all that will ever be. He said the cosmos, what you see is all there is, all there was and all there will ever be. He says there is no God. That's what he's saying in that. There's no God. Now, is that true or not? Well, if we were to evaluate whether or not that's true, you can't prove it in a, in a lab, you can't repeat some experiment, you have to look for evidence. What evidence does Carl Sagan have for his statement that everything you see is everything that there is, there's nothing spiritual, there is no God, it, 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 is, it is a hoax. What evidence does he have for that? 
Well, we're going to talk about the evidences in a moment, but, but, but for now, see that whatever is true, whatever we, we believe is true, we believe not because we can prove it, but because there is evidence. Now, I want to give you a test because uh, while it seems like I'm spending too much time on this point, you've really got to understand this in order to understand the next part. So here's the test. Was there a time when dinosaurs roamed the earth? Was there a time when dinosaurs roamed the earth? Well, to answer that question, we need to look to the evidence. Is there some evidence that dinosaurs roamed the earth? Well, it seems that there is. There, we've dug up some dinosaur bones all over the world. We've put them together. They make some scary looking skeletons. We have found some footprints in, in the mud that somehow has solidified through the years. And, and we can see the uh, the, the prints for where these dinosaurs walked. And so there's all kind of evidence that there was a time that dinosaurs walked the earth. So what do we believe? Well, I think the most reasonable thing to believe is that there were once dinosaurs. Because we look at the evidence, the evidence we evaluate it, it points to the fact it is reasonable to take a step of faith and say, based on the evidence, I believe dinosaurs roam the earth. Now, uh, so question number two on this test was there a time when pink flying unicorns roamed the earth? Okay? Now, I've seen these pink flying unicorns. My girls have had the stuffed animals. I've seen them on cartoons before. And so the, the question is, was there a time in our history that pink flying unicorns roamed the earth? Well, how do we know that? Well, we can't go back and check. We can't run an experiment in a laboratory. We have to look for evidence. And uh, much to the chagrin, perhaps, of our of, of the little girls in our church, there's no evidence of pink flying unicorns. They haven't dug any up. Uh, there, there are no footprints. There, there are no wings attached to a, you know, some, some horse with, a, with something sticking out its head. We don't have any evidence of it. And so we can conclude, though we can't prove, we can conclude based on the evidence that it is false that there were once pink flying unicorns roaming the earth. Now, critics would say, that the Bible demands that we Christians have a blind faith. Critics will say, if you're a Christian, you have to choose to believe something. The Bible commands you to believe something with no evidence. You just have to believe. In fact, sometimes people will ask me, Pastor, how can I believe if I don't believe? How do I believe? Well, we can't take out the role of the Holy Spirit, and I do want to mention that, and that is a whole different message. But, but, but listen, the Bible does not say that Christians are Christians because they have, they have made this, this leap of faith, that they have, they have this blind faith with, with no evidence. No, the Bible says that as Christians, we're to believe the words in the Bible. We're to believe in God the same way we believe that there are dinosaurs and there are not pink flying unicorns. We have faith. We do have to have faith. We have to, at some point, make a decision to believe. But it's faith based on evidence. And you see that throughout the Bible. I'll give you some examples. When, when Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and was resurrected... He appeared to the disciples, to many of the disciples, but not to all of them in the beginning. And so one disciple he did not appear to was Thomas. And so the disciples that Jesus did appear to told Thomas, who had not seen the resurrected Savior, that Jesus is alive. And Thomas said, no, that's impossible. I don't believe it. So Jesus appeared to Thomas. 
Now, what happened when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to Thomas who doubted that Jesus was resurrected? Well, John chapter 20, verse 27 tells the story. It says, Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Jesus said, look at the scars on my hands. Look where the, where the nails went in. He said, reach out your hand and put it in my side. They poked Jesus with a, with a spear in his side when he was on the cross. Jesus said, don't be faithless, but believe. When, when Thomas struggled to believe, Jesus said, let me give you some evidence. See, our belief as Christians is not some blind faith. We do have faith. We have chosen to believe, but we believe because first we have evidence. In fact, the whole gospel of John is about evidence. Listen to how the, the gospel it really wraps up. Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. So many things Jesus did are not written in the gospels, but it goes on to say, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John, when he wrote his gospel, said the reason I'm doing this is to give people evidence so that they can believe. We still have to believe. We still have to have faith, but it's faith based on evidence. When Peter preached his sermon at Pentecost, and, and you may not know this story, but Acts chapter 2, this is when the church begins. Peter preaches a message. Thousands of people come to know the Lord. What was the message about? It was a message about evidence. Peter stood up and he talked about prophecy that had been fulfilled. He talked about a Savior who had died and been resurrected. And he gave the evidence in the message. People heard the evidence and then they had faith. What about the Apostle Paul who wrote much of, the, much of the New Testament? How did he present the gospel? Well, we see it clearly in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to what he says. Jesus was buried. He was raised on the third day. According to scriptures, he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive. When Paul preached, he said, here's the evidence. Here's the evidence. So listen, whatever you believe... Whatever you believe about the most important things in life, you believe by faith. You have evidence, you evaluate the evidence, and you make a faith decision. What do you believe about the creation of the world? Well, whatever you believe, whether, whether you would call yourself a, a classic uh, a, a, a Darwinian uh, I don't know, astrophysicist, big bang theory believer, or, or if you would call yourself a young earth creationist, whatever you believe, you believe by faith. There's some evidence, you evaluated it, you made a choice. What, what do we believe about what happens after we die, life after death? It's a faith decision based on evidence. Does God exist? Same thing. When we come to the Lord, we don't come to the Lord because somebody has proved to us in some mathematical proof that, that God is real, it is because we have evidence, we have evaluated it, and through the, through the leadership of the Holy Spirit, we have chosen to believe God based on that evidence. Now, that's how we know. That's how we know anything. It is, it is faith based on evidence. Now, that brings us to the second question, and here's where we get to the, uh, really to the subject of the matter. How reasonable is it that God exists? Is that a reasonable thing to believe? Or is it more reasonable to believe that God does, does not exist? You know, the critic will say, okay, pastor, 
I understand. Everything I believe, I believe on evidence plus faith. But that takes us right back to where we started because the critic would say there's no evidence that God exists and there's a mountain of evidence that says God does not exist. And so, Pastor, you haven't, you haven't done anything. Okay, I agree that, that, that we believe by evidence and faith, but still, there's no evidence in God. There's a mountain of evidence against God. But listen, church, as it turns out, the truth is exactly the opposite of that. There's plenty of evidence that God exists, and there's no evidence that he does not exist. When somebody says that there is no evidence for God and all the evidence points the other way, that's simply a person who has not taken the time to study the evidence. That's a person who has just not made the effort to know. That's likely a person who doesn't want to know. Somebody asked me this week on a social media post, you may have seen it, a good question. I appreciate the question, but, but here's what they said. Why is there no non-biblical record of God and, and biblical supernatural events and characters from all societies worldwide since the beginning of recorded history? So here was the question. Pastor, if there is a God, then why don't we see evidence for it? Why is there not evidence in non-Christian sources and in places other than the Bible? Why is it there not evidence in all these different cultures and all these different societies? Why is there no evidence of God? When I read that, I thought, well, you know, that's a good question because you would think there would be, right? I mean, if there really is a God, you would think that there would be evidence even outside the Bible. You would think there'd be evidences in this culture, in this ancient culture. So why is there not? Well, listen, there is there's all kinds of evidence. When people say there's no evidence, it's because they don't want there to be evidence. If you're looking for cross-cultural literary evidence of the Genesis 6 flood, you can find it. You go into the ancient literature of all of these societies, and what do you find? You find stories of some great flood. Why? Because it happened. If, if you were wanting to find archaeological evidence of Bible civilizations and Bible events, you can find it. There's all kinds of real archaeological evidence. If you want to find historical evidence of fulfilled prophecies, it exists. We have records of these prophecies, biblical prophecies written. We know when they were written. We have dates. We are able to determine with, with confidence when they were written. And then we see the prophecies fulfilled years, sometimes hundreds of years later. It exists. If you want to find evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it exists. And we've, we've talked about that before. There is no event more attested to historically in, 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 in that period of time than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When people are unaware of the evidence for God, it's because they want to be unaware. I want to recommend a book to you. Nope, not that book. This book. Um, because there's so many things we cannot talk about today. And this is not the newest book or, or maybe even the easiest to read book. Uh, but this is the book titled, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Norman Geisler. And in this book, he, he does an excellent job of going through the evidences, historical, scientific, philosophical, going through the evidences that God is real. And I think it will, I think it'll encourage you. Now, we come to the place where we, we've just got to answer the question. Okay, pastor, if you say there's evidence, it's time to put up or shut up, right? <laughs> what are the evidences? Well, there are 
There are many evidences that we could focus on, way more than we have time to focus on today. That's why I recommend the book. Uh, we could talk about evidences that support Scripture. We could talk about philosophical evidences, scientific evidences. We could talk about evidences that undermine the arguments of the critics. But I want to focus on just one narrow argument uh, for, the, for the existence of God. There, there are basically four different ways that people have traditionally argued for the presence of God. There is the cosmological argument, the teleological, the axiological, and the ontological. You don't have to know what any of that means. But, but one, any one of these is convincing. It's convincing. If you'll study any of them, it, it, is, it is such overwhelming evidence that it's just a small step of faith to believe in God. But let me just take one of these. The, the one that is most simple, the teleological argument for the existence of God. Now, you don't have to know what that word means. Let me just give you the premises. Premise number one, a design indicates a designer. If you find something that seems to be designed, then that tells you that that object had a designer. And so if, if you're exploring caves in the mountains and you discover some cave up on some mountain and you wonder if anybody's ever been in this cave before, and so you go in the cave and you've got your light and you've got your gear and you don't know how far back it goes, but you begin to explore this cave. And, and, and a short ways in, your light sparkles, it glints off something and, and, and you go over and you pick it up to see what it is. And it's a pocket watch. And you look at it, it's got a, it's got a crystal cover on it, a see-through cover on one side. And then you turn to the other side, it's a shiny metal back. You pull off the back of the watch, this, this uh, pocket watch, and you notice it has all these gears and these springs, and they're all, they're all formed together. When, when one moves, they all move, and it is so intricate. What would you conclude about that find in the cave? Would you conclude that this is just an amazing example of how natural processes can sometimes do unexpected things? That maybe there was some water erosion and there was some ore here in this cave and, and then there were some quartz and, and so the quartz fell on the ore and the water uh, eroded the ore in such a way and, and over a million years you have a working uh, watch. Is that what you would conclude? No, nobody would conclude that. You would look at this with, this with this intricate design and you would conclude correctly that there must be a designer. Somebody figured this out. Somebody designed this and built this. The design tells us there has to be a designer. Have you ever looked up in the clouds and tried to imagine what shape the cloud Reminds you of. You know what I'm talking about. Probably not saying that well, but you look up at the clouds, and, and my girls uh, used to do this a lot, and they said, Well, that looks like an elephant, and that looks like a car, and that looks like a. And, and they, would, they would imagine. I could never see it. I don't know what that says about me or about them, but, but you know, they'd look up for a long time and they would find these, these shapes and these clouds and what it, what, it would, what it would look like. But imagine you're doing that, and we've all done that, right? And then a jet airplane goes across. Would you look then at that jet airplane and say, hmm, that's such an interesting cloud. It looks almost like an airplane, right? No, you recognize that that is not some natural occurrence that sort of kind of looks like something. No, that's an airplane. Somebody designed it and built it and flew it through the air. When we see something that is designed, we know that there is a designer. That's premise number one. Premise number two, 
the greater the design, the greater the designer. You know, beavers make log dams, right? Not much sophistication, but, but they do that. Birds make bird nests. Some of those can be sophisticated. People make skyscrapers. That's a whole other category, right? And so when the design is greater, when it is more intricate, then that tells us something about the designer. I picked up a book in my office, The Brothers Karamazov. Now, I don't want you to think more of me than you should. I've never read this. Somebody gave it to me. It's supposed to be one of the greatest novels ever written. It's a Russian novel. It's a thousand pages long. That was enough to convince me to put it on the shelf. So, but if you were to pick this book up, you're, you're, you're just out in, the, out in the woods, out in the forest, the jungle, some arid desert, and you see this book laying there and you pick it up and you look at it, all of these pages and all of these words, what would you conclude? Would you conclude that this is just a, you know, some natural occurrence? No, because you see that all of these letters are English letters and they all are grouped together, a thousand pages of them. They're grouped together and every grouping spells a word and it spells it correctly. And then these words are grouped together to make sentences that, that you can understand and the sentences are grouped together to tell a story, one of the greatest stories they say ever told in a novel. And so you would conclude that this was, this was created by somebody with a, with a great mind. You could take a million monkeys in front of a million typewriters for a million years and none of them would type this book out, right? But Dostoevsky sat down and did it on the first try. You see, when you see something that's designed, it tells us that there is a designer and the sophistication of the design tells us something about the designer. You got it? So that takes us to number three. The design found in the universe is undeniable. If you just look around, it's undeniable, the design in the universe. I want to show that to you in a couple ways. Uh, let's begin with the Big Bang Theory. Do you know what that is? Not the television show, but the, but the astrophysical theory. Uh, the Big Bang Theory uh, says that in the beginning, it's hard to imagine from a scientific point of view what the beginning is, but in the beginning, uh, there was nothing and it was nowhere, and it was at no time. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, bang, we everything, right? So that's, I, I'm sure scientists would, would use bigger words, but, but that's, that's the gist of it, okay? That's the, that's the Big Bang Theory, that, uh, that everything goes back to one single point, and then that goes back to, to, to nothing. All physical space, matter, and energy, and even time were created 15 billion years ago in the Big Bang Theory. Now, I want to talk about the Big Bang Theory, but, but let me just say something before we get to, to, to the design that we see in that. You want to talk about a leap of faith. How can, how can you believe that there was nothing, nowhere, at no time, and nobody caused it to all of a sudden turn into everywhere and everything at all times, that's a leap of faith. You want to talk about blind faith, that's, that's a pink flying unicorn kind of faith, right? But let's assume for a moment uh, that the Big Bang is how everything came into being. And I'm going to talk more about this in four weeks, and I, I'll give you a Christian perspective on the Big Bang. I just want to use it as an illustration right now. Because people like Stephen Hawking, one of the most well-known atheists uh, in modern times, they have written much about 
the design, this incredible design that had to be in, in the Big Bang in even the first second, one second of the existence of the universe. So let me just read. I want to read their own words. Now, they weren't writing about God. They were writing about the Big Bang, but they, they were saying something about God, whether they meant to or not. Let me just read. And, and some of this is technical, and I don't understand it all, but, but listen, Stephen Hawking estimated that if, if the rate of the universe's expansion one second into the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in 100,000 million million. Well, that's a pretty small ratio. Listen to that. One part, not one part in 100, not one part in 100,000, not even one part in 100,000 million, but one part in 100,000 million million, the universe would have recollapsed into a hot fireball. British physicist PCW Davies calculated that the odds against the initial conditions being suitable for star formation, which is necessary for planets, is one followed by a thousand billion billion zeros. He also estimated that the change in strength of gravity by only one part in 10 to the 100th power would have prevented life permitting universe. Roger Penrose of Oxford University calculated the odds of the Big Bang's low entropy, entropy condition existing by chance are in the order of one out of 10 to the 10th power and the 10th raised to the 123rd power. There are 50 such quantities that have to be exactly, precisely coordinated with one another in the very first second of the Big Bang or even these, these atheist scientists, by their own words, the universe could not have come into being. There is such design even in the first second of the creation by their own story. There's enough design to say there has to be a designer. I could go through a lot of examples. We could talk about the polarization of water. We could talk about DNA or the anatomy of skin cells. But, but let me just talk, talk about it from a, from a very easy to understand perspective. Look at this picture of a baby. Now just, just look at it a moment. How could somebody look at into the eyes of a baby and not believe that there is design and that there is design such that there must be a divine designer. Let me just tell you some things about this baby. This baby has a brain so complex that science is unable really to explain it and, and a brain that will grow in its capacity over the next hundred years to, to know and understand things that no computer, no matter how big, could, could handle. Th this, this little baby has a heart that is pumping blood to bring nutrients and oxygen to every single one of the billions of cells in this baby's body. Can you imagine? This baby has a digestive system that, that takes food and, and pulls out the nutrients and puts them in that blood that, that provides nutrients for the body. This baby has an immune system that right now is fighting off millions of bacteria to keep this baby safe. But then let me, let me just talk about the eyeballs. And I know this is, you know, you just want to say it's a beautiful baby, but I want you to appreciate the beauty. So there are two little round balls in the front face of this baby we call them eyeballs. They might better be called uh, some sort of antenna because their purpose is to analyze electromagnetic radiation. And so this electromagnetic radiation that we call light goes into these antenna that we call 
eyeballs. And instantly this baby is able to determine the wavelength of that light. And this baby knows that there's a difference between light that has a wavelength of 625 billionths of a meter and light that has a wavelength of 590 billionths of a meter. Because the first light is red and the second light is yellow. Even though there's only 35 billionths of a meter difference in the wavelengths of those two uh, magnetic, electromagnetic radiations, the baby can distinguish instantly between the two and calls one red and one yellow once she knows the words. Is there some design in this baby? This baby has two ears, acoustic radars on either side of its head that can detect vibrations in the air. And this baby can instantly know the difference between air that's vibrating at 16.35 times per second and air that is vibrating at 18.35 times per second. Because the first vibration is a C on the piano and the second vibration is a D on the piano. Da, 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 da. I, I, don't, I don't know my notes, but, but the baby can tell the difference. Can you imagine that? Is there some design in this baby? This baby you're looking at has 10,000 taste buds. 10,000. And all of them are wired together in such a way, listen to this, that they can instantly perform a chemical analysis on anything you put in this baby's mouth. And so that this baby, baby with these 10,000 uh, taste buds can determine the, the, in the chemical analysis whether this is sweet or sour or bitter or, or a combination of all those. Instantly, instantly build a robot that, that has 10,000 sensors to perform chemical analyses. And we could go on and on and on. If you don't see evidence of design and evidence of a designer in this baby's face, then you are trying not to. This baby makes a pocket watch simple, right? And if a watch, if you are convinced that a watch has a human designer, you must be convinced that this baby has a divine designer. Listen to Romans chapter one. I told you we'd get there eventually, verse 20. His invisible attributes, that is, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since creation, since the creation of the world being understood through what was made. And as a result, people are without excuse. Is there a God? Does God exist? If you look at the evidence, there's no question that the most reasonable focus of our faith is to believe and embrace that there is a God. Now, let me say something though about this. That answer is, I hope it's interesting, I hope it's uh, compelling, but it's not very satisfying. Right? I've never heard of someone who heard an explanation like that just, just stand up and run to the Lord. Because while it's true and it, and it does help silence the critics and, and we need to be able to give an answer for the, for the faith, for, the, for a reason for the faith that's within us, it's, it's not very satisfying. And let me, let me tell you why that is. Because ultimately, people don't have intellectual problems People have sin problems. 
And when someone denies the existence of God, it, it's not because that they have these questions that they can't get an answer to. It, it's because they have guilt. It's because they, they know on the inside that they are depraved and that they, they have no way to ever make themselves right and, and to ever atone for their sins before a holy God. That is written on our hearts. The Holy Spirit has, has drilled it into who we are. We know that. People don't want to deal with that. And so you have a choice. You can either run to the Savior or you can come up with some intellectual objection and excuse to hold Christ at, a, at, at, at an arm's length. See, people don't ultimately need more answers. People need forgiveness and hope. And so if you're a critic today or, or, or if you and I are talking to critics who have these tough questions, let's answer them. Uh, l listen, you, if you've got a tough question for God, ask him, research it, study it. God can stand your tough questions. But know this, that ultimately what people need are not answers. They need a savior. They need Jesus. And we need to answer them, but we need to love them. And, 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 and you need to know if you're, if you're a critic that, that ultimately all the, all the scientific answers and all the evidences will not satisfy the only thing that will satisfy is Jesus. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins that we're guilty of. And my only hope to be right with God, my only hope to have my sins forgiven is to trust what Jesus has done for me, to surrender to that. And then I will find the satisfaction that there is a God and I am right with him. The Bible only deals with atheism one time. Did you know that? Psalm 14.1 says this, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. There's no God. Can I tell you what that says in the Hebrew and the original language? You know, they add words oftentimes to help it make more sense in English. Here's what it says in the Hebrew. The fool says in his heart, no God. No God. It's, it, this is not an intellectual response. This is an emotional response. The fool says in his heart, I don't want there to be a God. I know God for me. And we say that because of the sin that's in our lives and the guilt, even if we can't express it. I'm telling you the only hope, the only satisfaction is found in Christ. Just so your head bowed and eyes closed, let me lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, Thank you that you have shown who you are in the creation that we see, that we can find evidences everywhere we look. Thank you for that, Father. Thank you. Now, let those evidences strengthen our faith and let them bring us to the foot of the cross. And there may we find the satisfaction for all of our confusion and our longings and our desires in Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.